Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm David Baddiel and in today's episode I'm joined by the award-winning screenwriter Elan Mastai. He's here to talk about his debut novel, All Our Wrong Todays. Elan, welcome. Thanks for having me. You've brought along as well a number of objects as well as your book to uh, show me. They influence the novel or they influence your life, just chapters in your life illustrated by objects. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about All Our Wrong Todays. It's your debut novel. Yes. One thing I really liked about it, I like many things about it, but one thing I like about it, which I always like in science fiction novels, in genre novels in general, is I think it's a novel about who we are, uh, the choices that face us as humanity, and all the eternal questions that the novel tries to pose, the important and great novels try to pose, but you've written it definitely. It's a genre novel. It's a piece of science fiction. Uh, yeah. Why that decision? Well, I, I, first of all, I like to be entertaining. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I had a lot of sort of big questions about identity and our society, where we're going, how we got here, taking personal responsibility for the consequences of your actions, what kind of person you want to be. I suppose I could have written a philosophical treatise that no one would have read. So I like the idea of taking those ideas and exploring them using kind of science fiction concepts as the metaphors, but also sort of the propulsion of the plot, the thing that gets you turning the pages, but presents kind of like a frame to pose these questions as the novel progresses. I mean, I think it's a novel in which the story engine, as well as the got rider engine, yeah. is very strong. You absolutely want to turn the pages. But as well as that, I think it takes in quite a lot of things that you normally maybe only expect in literary fiction, as I say, about identity and relationships and what is love and what are our choices. Yeah, it's definitely a combination. I mean, I, I love the genre elements. And when I was a kid and, and an adolescent, I mean, I was very inspired and excited by science fiction. But, you know, as you get older and mature as a person, as a writer... Yeah, I see it as a kind of a combination of kind of a literary fiction take on these genre elements, and that which gave me a chance to sort of both kind of make the writing as strong as possible, but also imbue it with the ideas that make, to me, make it worth writing. Well, let, let's just very quickly give a sense of the story then. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, Tom Barron, who is your hero, he lives in an alternative utopian universe, a sort of, you know, a paradise of hover cars and moving sidewalks and a disease and poverty-free life. And I noticed one thing, uh, novels in this world interact with your own personality. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to embrace the idea that it takes place right now. It's, it's the present day, but it's the version of the present that people in like the 1950s and 60s, what they thought 2016, 2017 was going to be like. I wanted to embrace that idea. So I thought about the implications of a lot of things. Yes, we have like robot maids and flying cars and you can take a vacation on the moon. But I like to think about the implications on art as well, what, it, mm. what art would be like. And, and in this version, yeah, novels don't really exist the way they do in our version of the world. There, it's more of like an interactive um, storytelling technology where the story's always about you, mm. right? Instead of being about the author and their eccentricities, sort of psychological quirks, the story they're telling from their point of view, every story you read is about what's going on in your head. Yeah. And I thought that that was an interesting way of sort of framing this society as being just very different than ours. Yeah, although it isn't that different, is it? Because in a way, it's a comment on the narcissism in our society. Well, exactly. That eventually, you will yeah. get all forms of cultural production will just be about you and how you can interact with them. And advertising and style and even the food you eat, everything is about you specifically. And that sense of, um, although it's incredibly pleasurable mm. to feel like you're the centre of the economy and everything is mm. about you, yeah, I, I mean, there is... An inherent narcissism, that what you want is the most important thing in the world. And it ends up, it does atomize society. You know, we don't, in this version of the world, people don't go and watch plays or movies in a big group. They don't go see concerts. Everything's just about you. The World's Fairs, that sort of idea of the 1964 World's Fair, Expo 67 in Montreal, that idea of the future was the one I kind of took and ran with, you know, which was a very optimistic 
you know, sense that like, oh, technology is going to solve all of humanity's problems. Everyone is going to live in this equalist kind of paradise. At the same time, and, and I don't hit this too hard of the novel, but it was something I thought about as a writer. Those world's fairs were actually very consumerist. Mm. You know, they were building this vision of the future, but it was all based on the product that companies would sell you. They were selling you an idea of the future. And so I, you know, we now, you know, in our version of the world, people are skeptical of corporations and sort of, you know, they, they see these giant corporations as not necessarily out for your good, they're out for the good of their profits. But I imagined a version of consumerism where there's a certain kind of, there's a social equality. As long as you can buy the product, everybody's equal. Mm. And so I thought that that would be an interesting way of, could, could I get society to a place where there is, you know, gender equality and racial equality and class equality, but not through the sort of massive political and social upheavals that, that we went through in the 60s and 70s and 80s, but instead to do it through consumerism? Is this mm. sort of like a, a sort of a more positive consumerism, mm. but which would have implications too. For example, as I sort of get into in the book, people are much more, uh, they sort of more deferential to authority. People don't question the government and companies the way they do here, which has the also negative effect is that music is not as cool there as it mm, is here. Mm. They never had to come up with punk because there was mm. nothing to rebel against. Yeah, it's all too nice. Yeah. It's all too, if you don't mind me saying, Canadian. <laughs> I suppose... It's sort of how we manage right. in Vancouver. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's where I grew up. <laughs> right. uh, and I mean, it's funny that you bring that up because for me, so I grew up in Vancouver and 1986, we had Expo 86, which was a World's Fair in the same lineage as all the sort of famous world's fairs from new york and montreal and all those uh, and i loved it and i spent tons of time on the fairgrounds and i loved the monorails and the robots and the pavilions with all these visions of the future it's only recently actually i looked back and started researching them again for the book that i discovered that actually expo 86 was the last world's fair ever hosted in north america we haven't we've never done one mm. since then it's like in the past 30 years we sort of stopped imagining the future that way and so that sense it's funny because i didn't think about the influence, not just the influence of the World's Fairs, but the fact that we stopped throwing them. But that becomes, of course, the crux of the book, because the book doesn't only take place mm. in this sort of giddy, dazzling version of the world. Okay, yes. Uh, well, I, I don't want to do any spoilers, because it's. I think it's a book that would absolutely be ruined by spoilers. But to give you some sense of uh, what happens is Tom, the hero, if, uh, eventually creates uh, a crack in that universe that you're describing. And so let's hear you reading Tom's beginning to illustrate what that world was before he makes it all go wrong. So the thing is, I come from the world we were supposed to have. That means nothing to you, obviously, because you live here in the crappy world we do have. But it never should have turned out like this. And it's all my fault. Well, me and to a lesser extent my father. And yeah, I guess a little bit Penelope. It's hard to know how to start telling this story, but okay. You know the future that people in the 1950s imagined we'd have? Flying cars, robot maids, food pills, teleportation, jetpacks, moving sidewalks, ray guns, hoverboards, space vacations, and moon bases. All that dazzling, transformative technology our grandparents were certain was right around the corner. The stuff of world's fairs and pulp science fiction magazines with titles like Fantastic Future Tales and The Amazing World of Tomorrow. Can you picture it? Well, it happened. It all happened, more or less exactly as envisioned. I'm not talking about the future. I'm talking about the present. Today, in the year 2016, humanity lives in a techno-utopian paradise of abundance, purpose, and wonder. Except we don't. Of course we don't. We live in a world where, sure, there are iPhones and 3D printers and, I don't know, drone strikes or whatever, but it hardly looks like the Jetsons. Except it should. And it did. Until it didn't. But it would have if I hadn't done what I did. Or, no, hold on, what I will have done. 
Um, I think that gives a sense. We're going to talk later in the podcast about the intricacies of time travel in this book, but that gives a sense of the many complex possibilities even that when, always exist in this book. Even grammar yeah. starts to buckle under the weight of time travel. It does, it does. And, and also the fragmentation of personality becomes yeah. a major issue as to which Tom and which version of Tom is talking. Yeah. Let's look at because it's been sitting there for a while and it's been bugging me. There's an avocado <laughs> on the table, right, which is, is the first of the objects, not because I'm hungry, I'm yeah. just interested in, you have brought along as the first of your objects that influenced your thinking as it's an avocado. So tell us about that. Well, um, one of the nice things about imagining a sort of a dazzling technological utopia is that you can solve your pet peeves as well. And so I like avocados, uh, but I live in Canada where the truth is we don't grow a lot of avocados. Mm. They have to, we have to bring them in. Mm. And, you know, one of my great pet peeves is, you know, when you cut into an avocado for the first time and it looks perfect, you're ready to go, you're, you're, this is what you're going to have for Your lunch. Your dressing's or, probably prepared. Yeah, everything's ready. Yeah. And you cut into the avocado and it's either hard and underripe or it's you know, bruised and mm. brown and all sort of like threaded with some sort of strange black veining. And it's just the most disappointing experience. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I've had that thought before. It's like, I can't believe that we're living in 2017 and we haven't figured out just the, the simple solution to making avocados always perfect. And mm. so in my version of the world, and this version of sort of like this other alternate version of the world where it's the sort of utopian version, of course, every avocado you eat is always perfect. Yeah. And there's a lot of big technology, really fun sort of big ideas kind of spinning off of the sort of the vision of the future from the 50s and 60s and how it might play out now. But I always wanted to ground all of this in every day. Mm. You know, sure, there are flying cars, but what does that do to traffic? Mm. You know, they have teleportation, but how does that affect your morning commute? Mm. You know, because for most of us, I mean, you know, maybe you feel excited about the technology in the first five minutes when you get it, but then pretty soon it just becomes part of your everyday and, and you're more interested in how it affects your just everyday life. And so for me, the avocado became a, the sort of idea of a world of perfect avocados versus our world became a way just to think about, well, what is the human implication of this technology? What is the, just the quotidian everyday use of stuff and how might something that, it, that seems incredible on the surface have consequences on people's lives? Mm. There's an idea that sort of fuels a lot of the, the book, and it's this idea of the accident. The notion is that every time you invent a technology, you also invent the accident of the technology. Mm. Uh, when you invent a car, you simultaneously invent a car accident. There's no such thing as a plane crash until you invent the plane. There's no such thing as a nuclear meltdown until you invent the nuclear power plant. And I, I always like to think about the unintended consequences of things. Can I ask you, though, one thing about the uh, the way that you could have a society in which all avocados would be perfectly ripe is I, I think in your book you really do like that world at some level. You are aware, the author, I guess, or Tom does anyway, Tom, you get a sense that, you know, there is this possibility that the music might not be so great uh, and that there might be a certain sort of light and shade that you miss out on. But essentially, it's brilliant. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I, I certainly reading it thought, mm, I'm a bit pissed off that Tom's ruined this timeline. Yeah. I really like the sound of this world. No, absolutely. And I mean, when I was a kid... Um, my love of science fiction, my interest in the genre, uh, really came from my grandfather, who was a chemist and uh, you know trained in the sciences. He had this extensive collection of old fifties, sixties science fiction, and I loved it. You know, and I used to love staring at the kind of garishly painted covers with the robots and the mad scientists and the futuristic cityscapes, and it really captured my imagination. But even as a kid in the eighties, and this is sort of the the sort of contrast to my you know passion for the Expo Expo eighty six and that kind of vision of the futures, I knew it wasn't turning out the way these 
writers and artists imagined. You know, mm. like even in the 80s, these stories were written in the 50s and 60s, like it wasn't progressing. We weren't on schedule no. with what they thought was going to happen. And so that, I, from a young age, I, I, I wondered, like, what happened to the future we were promised, you know? Well, we've got, um, I'm going to uh, cue another clip there because you perfectly introduced it, which is the moment, I believe it's July the 11th, 1965, Lionel Gottreader invents the future. And so uh, we have you read from the audiobook of All Our Wrong Todays describing that moment. On July 11th, 1965, Lionel Gottreider invented the future. Obviously, you've never heard of him, but where I come from, Lionel Gottreider is the most famous, beloved, and respected human on the planet. Every city has dozens of things named after him. Streets, buildings, parks, whatever. Every kid knows how to spell his name using the catchy mnemonic tune that goes G-O-E-T-T-R-E-I-D-E-R. You have no idea what I'm talking about. But if you were from where I'm from, it'd be as familiar to you as ABC. 51 years ago, Lionel Gottreider invented a revolutionary way to generate unlimited, robust, absolutely clean energy. His device came to be called the Gottreider engine. July 11, 1965, was the day he turned it on for the very first time. It made everything possible. Imagine that the last five decades happened with no restrictions on energy. No need to dig deeper and deeper into the ground and make the skies dirtier and dirtier. Nuclear became unnecessarily tempestuous, coal and oil pointlessly murky. Solar and wind and even hydropower became quaint, low-fidelity alternatives that nobody bothered with unless they were peculiarly determined to live off the main grid. So how did the Gattrider engine work? How does electricity work? How does a microwave oven work? How does your cell phone or television or remote control work? Do you actually understand on like a concrete technical level? If those technologies disappeared, could you reconceive, redesign, and rebuild them from scratch? And if not, why not? You only use these things pretty much every single day. But of course you don't know, because unless your job's in a related field, you don't need to know. They just work effortlessly as they are intended to. Where I come from, that's how it is with the Gattrider engine. It was important enough to make Gattrider as recognizable a name as Einstein or Newton or Darwin. But how it functioned, like, technically, I really couldn't tell you. Basically, you know how a dam produces energy? Turbines harness the natural propulsion of water flowing downhill via gravity to generate electricity. To be clear, that's more or less all I understand about hydroelectric power. Gravity pulls water down, so if you stick a turbine in its path, the water spins it around and somehow makes energy. The Gattrider engine does that with the planet. You know that the Earth spins on its axis and also revolves around the sun, while the sun itself moves endlessly through the solar system. Like water through a turbine, the Gattrider engine harnesses the constant rotation of the planet to create boundless energy. It has something to do with magnetism and gravity and, honestly, I don't know, any more than I genuinely understand an alkaline battery or a combustion engine or an incandescent light bulb. They just work. So does the Gattrider engine. It just works. Or it did. Before, you know, me. That's one of the rare bits in the book where you sort of imply that you're bottling out of trying to explain the science. But I should say that the science, I think, is pretty good in this book. I mean, as far as I understand, a non-scientific person, that, that you try very hard and I think successfully to make the science work in the book. And actually, if I could just say, even that bit, Gattrider's using the engine, using the spin of the earth... I think that sounds like a good idea and plausible to me. Thank you. Yeah. I did a lot of research into like all that sort of stuff and how the idea that you might be able to cap- use the rotation of the planet to capture kinetic energy. Mm. Um, 
that could then be transformed into electricity and just the, the how much energy that would produce compared to what we use now, which is primarily fossil fuels, mm. which actually are very inefficient. Mm. I started doing some research and thinking, which is like, what, well, what did happen to the future that we thought we were going to have? And a lot of it comes down to fuel. You know, the way we produce energy is just so inefficient. It doesn't produce enough energy. And it's really held us back. And even renewables like solar and, and hydroelectric and all that, all that sort of stuff, like they're, they're still very low gauge. And so to kind of fuel this future that I was imagining, I had to kind of go back and say, okay, well, something had to change. And, and the, the, if I could choose one thing that would change everything, it would be unlimited clean fuel. Um, one thing that happens in the time travel bit is that you make it very clear, which I've never seen made clear in a science fiction book before, that if people were to travel through time, they would also travel through space because of the rotation of the Earth. Yeah. And now you sort of see the the kind of the way the book is constructed. I introduced the idea of the you know the rotation of the Earth for the for the engine, and then that turns out to be quite relevant to the time travel. Yes, uh, yeah, that's another you know just like an, uh, overripe avocados. Another pet peeve of mine is that I've never. You know, you read these time travel stories and they act as if you can just open up a door and walk through to the past. Well, the time machine, obviously the original one, H.G. Wells, my memory very clearly in the film of that is, you know, the the weird-looking... Carty, it's pressed, the lever is pressed, then next thing you know, they're there in the same space, but it's the landscape has changed. So, But of course, it's like saying that the sun is rotating around the earth as opposed to we're rotating around the sun. Like, yes. we know it's not true. The earth is spinning on its axis at up to a thousand miles an hour. The earth is moving around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour. The sun itself is moving through the galaxy at, at over a million miles an hour. And I'm in the UK, so I should be using kilometers, but I'm, I can't do the math on off the top of my head. Miles uh, is fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> the, uh, it occurred to me that um, if you were traveling back in time, you'd also have to travel back in space. If we went back in time to yesterday, we wouldn't be on the planet. The Earth would be tens of thousands of kilometers away from us. Mm -hmm. And so we'd be stranded in the empty vacuum of space. And even if you did figure out a way to travel back in in time and space, you're trying to land in a very precise spot on the spinning outer crust of this planet as it hurtles through the galaxy. And so I wanted to create a form of time travel that actually took orbital mechanics and astrodynamics into consideration. Um, Because to me, unless you're doing that, it's not, it's the time travel is just magic. It's just Mm. like a time turner in Harry Potter. It's Mm. not. And and this version of the future is one in which science is sort of the dominant religion. And so I wanted to embrace that and do all the research, not necessarily put it all in the book because I don't expect the reader to wade through all of my research. Um, and part of that is the casual voice where he sort of explains things and sometimes he goes into more details than others. But I, I sort of tried to find the balance of me doing all the research but not burdening the reader with it, but but giving them enough that I think it's interesting mm-hmm. and kind of makes the, the story feel sort of more textured and also just has these little moments where you're like, oh, yes, why have I never seen that in a time travel story before? Yeah. Yeah. My uh, job is to ruin all other time travel stories for you. <laughs> Take well, that, Doctor well, Who. But I think just before we go on to your next item, there's just one thing you said that I really want to pick up on, which is that in, in this world, science is like a religion. Mm-hmm. And that's very clear. The Gottrider engine moment, the, the moment it's created, has become like the Sistine Chapel hasn't in, in that world. There's yeah. the 16 witnesses <laughs> yeah. who are described in many different ways and painted, and, the, and then Tom has seen lots of images of those. And I think that's a brilliant idea. Yeah, that this moment in history where sort of people feel like the future was born in this 
laboratory on July 11th, 1965, and it's become iconic. Everybody's become mythologized, separated from the actual reality of, of this sort of scientific experiment where the scientist didn't even know if it was going to work. Mm. He just had a lot of big dreams and some theories. And so I, I like the idea that it becomes heavily mythologized, not just sort of, um, you know, politically or, or scientifically, but, but artistically, mm. like that it becomes this thing where people paint it, people, you know, recreate it, they write stories about it, that it's become the guiding myth, this idea of scientific discovery being the guiding mythology of that society. And then when you actually, Tom was actually there in the moment later on, you discover, of course, that the human reality behind that iconic moment is very messy. That's right. And that's, you know, getting into the heart of the novel, which is reality is always messy. Part of what makes utopia pleasurable is that it's, it feels simplistic. It feels simple. It feels yes or no or black and white. When you get into reality, things start to get very messy, very complicated, and that's difficult. But um, unless you really embrace the mess, you're never going to solve any of the problems that we face. Let's look at your second item that sure. you brought along, uh, which is, what is it? In fact, tell me. Well, I brought uh, a copy of Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle. This is an old beat-up paperback that I found on my grandfather's bookshelf. I sort of re- referenced his, uh, you know, his old collection of science fiction that meant so much to me. So when my grandfather passed away, I inherited the collection and this was one of them. Part of what I love about it is how beat up it is. The cover is ripped and creased. Uh, it has a sort of the style of the 60s when it came out. It was 95 cents. Mm. Um, but this book was very influential on me. Kurt Vonnegut in general was very influential on me because he was somebody who used the ideas of science fiction to comment on the society he was living in. And he was very funny, but he was very compassionate, even as he was critical. You know, Mm. he took humanity to task for its blind spots and foibles and constant sort of circular mistakes, but at the same time had compassion for us and wanted us to do better. And, And he just used wild ideas to sort of like tease out the contradictions of human nature. When I started writing the book, like a lot of first-time novelists, I was writing it on the side, you know, um, stealing away time on evenings and weekends to kind of try to get my ideas down. And so each, originally each chapter reflected one day's work. I set myself the goal of writing 500 words a day and that's it. Just If I could just do a little bit every day, but do it every single day. And I realized several chapters in that I was essentially, that was the style of, of Cat's Cradle, which also has these very short chapters. And so I ended up, because of this central event that I wrote took place in 1965, and Cat's Cradle was written in 1963, I ended up writing it into the book. Okay. And um, this central character, Lionel Gattrider, Kurt Vonnegut is his favorite writer and has influenced his perspective. And so I like the idea also that in that version of the world, Kurt Vonnegut, sort of stopped being a novelist and became this like philosopher. And he became a very different cultural figure, which got me thinking of the idea of what art and literature, movies, music would look like in a different world. It's also, I haven't read Cat's Cradle, but it's also a utopian novel, isn't it? It's about an island characters go to, and there's a religion there that is a kind of utopian religion. Tell me if I'm wrong. This no, is, no. This is Wikipedia talking, yeah. I have to tell you. <laughs> there's a lot of themes of the book. Uh, I'd figured out my whole novel, and I plotted it all out in my head, and I started writing it and realized that, oh yeah, all the same themes. I'm basically just writing an updated version of Cat's Cradle. There's a scientist named Felix Honecker, uh, not Lionel Gattrider. <laughs> okay. I didn't even think about it when I was writing it until I was like, oh my gosh, so I better, I, I'm, I might as well acknowledge the influence before anybody else does. There's this scientist who invents um, this technology which has very potentially positive impact but also catastrophic results. There's this utopian island which is based on a sort of a religious philosophy about the absurdity of life but also the importance of human connection. Mm-hmm. And it follows this group of characters as, as this uh, potentially very dangerous technology but also the sort of the utopian society 
maybe kind of come into collision. And so, yeah, I mean, fortunately, Cat's Cradle, he was writing about 1963, and yeah. by, by, I figure by 2017, somebody can come and update those. <laughs> uh, but this but this book, um, yeah. But there's it no was, time travel in it. No, there? no, 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 no. There's no time travel. That would be more Slaughterhouse-Five. Yes. Yeah, yeah. which yeah. is another book that was really, in, really influenced me because that's a book that uses an idea like time travel to talk about memory and identity and how we cope with trauma and how we figure out who we are. And it kind of blew my mind as a kid. I read it, like, I think when I was an early teenager. Mm. And Slaughterhouse-Five uh, was one of those books that made me realize you can do more with science fiction than just sort of tell a fun story. Mm. You can you can use these met- as metaphors to kind of plumb the depths of what makes us who we are. Yeah, it's a thing about science fiction, isn't it? I mean, it's the same in crime as well, but there's this weird looking down upon that genre novels sometimes have, and yet there's such a huge heritage, in fact, yeah. of uh, very high-level, interesting, cerebral, philosophical ideas being played out in those books. Yeah, absolutely. There's a bit in the book where you talk about Cat's Cradle, as you say, and we've got it now on audio book reading. Here it is. Nearly every object of art and entertainment is different in this world. Early on, the variations aren't that significant. But as the late 60s gave way to the vast technological and social leaps of the 1970s, almost everything changed, generating decades of pop culture that never existed, 50 years of writers and artists and musicians creating an entirely other body of work. Sometimes there are fascinating parallels, a loose story point in one version that's the climax in another, a line of dialogue in the wrong character's mouth, a striking visual composition framed in a new context, a familiar chord progression with radically altered lyrics. July 11, 1965 was the pivot of history, even if nobody knew it yet. Fortunately, Lionel Gatrider's favorite novel was published in 1963, Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Vonnegut's writing is different where I come from. Here, despite his wit and insight, you get the impression he felt a novelist could have no real effect on the world. He was compelled to write, but with little faith that writing might change anything. Because Cat's Cradle influenced Lionel Gatrider so deeply, in my world, Vonnegut was considered among the most significant philosophers of the late 20th century. This was probably great for Vonnegut personally, but less so for his novels, which became increasingly homiletic. I won't summarize Cat's Cradle for you. It's short and much better written than this book, so just go read it. It's weary, cheeky, and wise, which are my three favorite qualities in people and art. Tangentially, weary, cheeky, and wise are the three codified reactions I couldn't remember from the 16 witnesses to the activation. Cat's Cradle is about a lot of things, but a major plot thread involves the invention of Ice-9, a substance that freezes everything it touches, which falls out of its creator's control and destroys all life on the planet. Lionel Gatrider read Cat's Cradle and had a crucial realization, what he called the accident. When you invent a new technology, you also invent the accident of that technology. When you invent the car, you also invent the car accident. When you invent the plane, you also invent the plane crash. When you invent nuclear fission, you also invent the nuclear meltdown. When you invent Ice-9, you also invent unintentionally freezing the planet solid. When Lionel Gatrider invented the Gatrider engine, he knew he couldn't turn it on until he figured out its accident and how to prevent it. My favorite exhibit at the Gatrider Museum is the simulation of what could have happened if the engine had somehow malfunctioned when Gatrider first turned it on. In the worst-case scenario, the unprecedented amounts of energy pulled in by the engine overwhelm its intake core, triggering an explosion that melts San Francisco into a smoldering crater, 
poisons the Pacific Ocean with tau radiation, corrodes 10,000 square miles of arable land into a stew of pain, and renders an impressive swath of North America uninhabitable for decades. Parents would occasionally complain to the museum's curatorial staff that the simulation's nightmarish imagery was too graphic for children. And since the experiment obviously didn't fail, why draw attention away from Getreider's majestic contributions to human civilization with grotesque speculation about imaginary global disasters? The simulation was eventually moved to an out-of-the-way corner of the museum, where generations of teenagers on high school field trips would huddle in the darkness and watch the world fall apart on a continuous loop. I'm not a genius like Lionel Getreider or Kurt Vonnegut or my father, but I have a theory too. The accident doesn't just apply to technology. It also applies to people. Every person you meet introduces the accident of that person to you. What can go right and what can go wrong? There is no intimacy without consequence. Which brings me back to Penelope Weschler and the accident of us, of all of us. So let's talk about time travel, because it's been in my head for a while. And that introduces one of the key elements uh, of, the, of the whole book, but also of the time travel structure, which is here you have this perfect narration that comes from the Gottrider engine being created in 1965 and everything being fine. And then what would happen if that had malfunctioned, but in fact, if it wasn't just a random malfunction, but if the character in the book is responsible for that malfunction. Now, what the question I sort of want to ask is, because I think you tie up things incredibly well in this book, but it is the case, isn't it, that there's a kind of time travel books often beg how narratively satisfying are they going to be Mm -hmm. in the end? And was that a concern of yours? Because you're always worried with, you know, uh, Interstellar or whatever you might be watching. Like, does this all actually make sense? Yeah, I didn't start writing the book until I felt like I had a very strong ending in place. Because for just that reason, I didn't want to start writing it and realize, uh, you know, I've thrown all these cards up into the air and I can never get them back into a stacked deck. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the ending, not just narratively, but emotionally, psychologically, what I wanted the reader to feel. Uh, so I, I worked it all out before I ever sat down and started actually writing the book. And that's just a general trend of my writing. I don't usually start until I feel like I have a very good... Unless I feel like the ending is the best part, I don't start writing. Now, once you actually read it, you may disagree, but that's how I feel. You know, I don't start writing it until I feel like I have a, uh, not just a, you know, a workable ending, but a great ending. Mm-hmm. You know, the beauty of writing a book is you can work backwards. So once you know where you want to end, you you can work back and that's sort of the, you know, it hopefully feels effortless for the reader. A but, book is yeah. its own time machine. That's right. That's right. Actually, very true. It is its own time machine. You're con- you know, I think one of the reasons writers love time travel as a narrative um, plot point is because we spend so much time rewriting. Mm. You know, you go back and you fix your mistakes. Yes. Uh, you try again. You try to make yourself more eloquent or graceful or witty or whatever. But, you know, in writing, you have the chance that you don't have in real life, which is to fix your mistakes and get a second chance to do better. Mm. It's hard to talk about without without giving stuff away. But by the end, I would say there are a number of different timelines in play. Yeah. Uh, were you worried at any point that the reader might get confused? Yes, absolutely, which is why... So, you know, I know a lot of writers, they have, like, their board with the post-it notes and string, and it looks like they're a serial killer planning, you know, a series of murders. What I decided was, if I can't keep the entire story in my head, then I can't expect the reader to. So I kept working on it and working on it until I felt like I could keep the basic storyline in my head very clearly, and that's when I was ready to start writing. 
Well, I think that might bring a time to bring in your, your next item that you brought along, because I think an element of what you've just talked about, which is a sort of very strong, clear story beats mm. in what is quite a complex narrative, may um, pertain to your history as a screenwriter. Yeah. And so the next thing I brought in was a copy of my screenplay for what was called the F word, but was released yeah. as what if. Yeah. And my background is as a screenwriter. I've been working as a screenwriter for more than a dozen years and written a number of films. Um, and yeah, absolutely. I mean... Part of why I wanted to write a novel is because I was interested in exploring a different writing form. Um, I mean, I like screenwriting and I love the collaborative process of making movies. The thing about a screenplay is it's always written in the same style. No matter what genre you're writing, mm. comedy, horror, historical epic, it's always written in the third person. Mm. It's always written in the present tense. It's very, you know, visually dynamic, but it's a very laconic, very lean writing style. Mm. And you're always external, right? You're always de- you're describing events as they're happening, but you're never inside the character's mind mind uh, or their psychology. And so the chance to kind of like access all those literary tools of a novelist felt like the right way to tell this particular story. But I certainly drew off of my many, many years as a screenwriter, both in terms of how I write some of the set pieces in the book, which are very cinematic. And even in terms of, you know, I didn't realize it at the time. But actually, as I look back on it, one of the reasons probably why the scenes are so short is because they're, or the chapters are so short is because they're like scenes, which is what I'm comfortable with. But as a screenwriter, you know, you're always, your job is not just to tell a great story, but to create a document that you can bring your director, your producer, your actors, your crew, that everybody can understand the story you're all trying to tell. And so Mm. no matter how complex your story, it has to be discernible. It has to be lucid. It has to also be like shootable Mm. for for your crew, for your actors, you have to give them characters they can act. If you if you write a character that like can't be performed, what are they supposed to do with it? And so in the context of the novel, I I felt like my well, I'm not collaborating with the director and actors, I'm collaborating with the reader. You know, the movie quote unquote, that I'm creating is the one that's projected on the back of your head. Mm. But just like I do with my director and my actors uh, and my crew as a screenwriter, I have to make sure that everything is as lucid and imaginable We've talked a lot about um, science fiction and about narrative and about writing. But, of course, this book is about love. And the uh, fly in the ointment of the utopian timeline turns out to be the most messy thing, which is relationships and love. So let's see where that begins in this clip from the audiobook. She stood there, staring up at the black sky and the blue moonlight. I wasn't sure if I should approach or retreat. At the reception, the other chrononauts were awash in fawning crowds. She'd chosen to have a moment by herself, and I couldn't imagine a scenario in which I'd be welcome. But then, without looking away from the night sky, Penelope spoke to me. I still think about it all the time, she said, being up there. Everyone says this is so much more important. I would have been the millionth astronaut, but I get to be the first chrononaut. So why do I wish I was out there instead? I came up next to her, shoulders almost but not quite touching, and mimicked her pose, peering up at the sky. Of course we'd had conversations before, but mostly just about technical matters and training protocols. Not like this. Personal. Confiding. I knew if I didn't say something right away, I'd lose my nerve. Maybe because we already know everything about where you're going, I said. There's no mystery to the past. It's all about how you get there. You didn't want to go to space to test a rocket ship. You wanted to see things no one's ever seen before. I don't know where any of that came from. I just kind of said it. Penelope didn't reply, so I worried I'd said the wrong thing and too much of it. But when I looked at her, she was staring at me. 
Somehow I managed to keep my mouth shut and hold her gaze. She kissed me. As many times as I'd imagined it, I wasn't prepared for this kiss. I don't mean like emotionally. I mean its tactile quality, the emphatic pull of her lips on mine. It may have been the first time our bodies deliberately touched, my mouth pressed to her mouth, surrounded by glowing sculptures, standing on the hard surface of a 200 million square mile ball of rock and ore and water, protected from the endless void by a 300 mile cushion of atmospheric gas. It was both the greatest kiss of my life, and also made me feel like until that moment I'd been kissing all wrong. Penelope broke the kiss, glanced back up at the sky, and walked away. For a moment, I didn't think I'd be able to take it. The heartbreak, if I had to spend the rest of my life trying to recreate what that kiss felt like with other people. But then she looked back at me. Come on, Penelope said. One thing about that clip, actually, is the, the novel later on, the narrator calls it a memoir. And actually, that is very indicative of the sort of storytelling quality of the book like someone else might have written that scene with lots of dialogue and you know uh, sort of more present tense even if it was in the past but it's very much you hear Tom's voice telling it as if you've sat down with him after the event and he's telling you the story yeah yeah that was a deliberate choice I wanted it was you know first of all to write it in the first person and have his voice be the guide not just because I thought he would be a sort of a welcoming and interesting narrator but because you know part of the story is it's not just what he sees, it's what he doesn't see. You know, um, his blind spots are as, as important to the narrative. And as he sort of comes to recognize them, uh, the things that he takes for granted, the things that he doesn't notice, those become important as the, as the story progresses. And at the same time, um, I felt he would be the, he's a great guide for this world because he doesn't, something doesn't take it seriously. It's just that he's not as impressed with it. And mm. it was, there's a certain breathlessness to a lot of science fiction, mm. particularly utopian science fiction that I wanted to avoid. Mm. I just felt like I'd seen it before and it wasn't the way I wanted to tell the story. And then, more than anything, what this is actually a story about is human connection, mm. love, mm. Uh, romantic love, but also family, and how these kind of connections between the people in our lives, once you strip away everything, that's what really gives your life purpose. I feel like both for me and for Tom, every good decision and also every terrible decision that he makes is because of love. I mean, it kind of ties back to the avocado, right? Mm. Like I wanted to re keep reminding both Tom and the reader that this is still a story about people and people are, you know, whatever technology we add, it's still our bodies, our hearts, the connection between us, the physicality, death. There are some deaths in the book and when they happen, and they're supposed to be shocking and emotional and whip you out of the sort of the utopian vision and remind you that we're still these fragile kind of human beings. But that's one thing I wanted to talk about, actually, which was uh, I think Tom, you put him through some terrible things. Yeah. I think he's a man more sinned against than sinning. I thought, does he deserve this? Well, this he did of... break the space-time continuum. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's and, a bad thing to do. Yeah, and so, you know, I mean, uh, there has to be consequences. Yeah. No, but, you know, I and I, I do think this stems from my, my screenwriting background too, but also um, I just believe that the way you find out who a character really is is by having bad things happen to them. You have to love your character so much that mm. you're willing to torture them because mm. it's the only way they and the reader figure out who they really are. Mm. I think about my own life and I've, been fortunate. I, you know, you sort of made the joke that I, I'm Canadian and I sort of described it almost Canadian feeling mm. utopia. But, you know, I've gone through loss in my life. I lost my mother when I was quite young. And, um, and it's not the same situation. And Tom, I'm not giving anything away because it happens early in the book. Tom mm. loses his mother. Mm. And uh, although the circumstances are very different, I was writing about 
looking back at what that experience felt like at that age. And, you know, I tried to write about it as sort of with as much emotional accuracy uh, as I could muster, uh, which was hard. You go through this terrible time in your life, not just your life, but the life of your family, where all you feel very destabilized, where it feels like the sort of center of gravity of your of your sort of family unit. You know, we, it, the family was completely intact until she died, and it happened quite quickly. And so that was another instance of what um, I was drawing off autobiographically, and there was a certain catharsis to being able to write about it because I never had before. Mm. At the same time, you know, I wanted us, I wanted people to understand what why Tom makes some of the bad decisions he makes, you know, and because I. I I felt as the author, although Tom wouldn't descri- like, I don't think he- Tom wouldn't describe his behavior this way. But for me, this is this is also a story. As much as it is about time travel and utopia and technology, it's about how you handle grief, mm. how you handle heartbreak, how you find a way to rebuild yourself after those losses. It's about acceptance to some extent, isn't it? Because of course, yeah, exactly, a lot of people in this book are trying to fix things that happened in the past, yeah. including death. And, it's yeah. not just Tom. There are other people who want to fix death and fix the death of someone who they're very close to. That's right. Um, and in a way, I guess the book moves towards an idea that there is no fixing of those things. There that, is just acceptance. That's right. Once you introduce a time machine, the impermanence of death starts to feel a little uh, looser, mm. which is, of course, both the seductive but also the calamitous yeah, quality exactly. of a time machine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now we're talking about, about love. I noticed there you have a dog collar. Yeah. So why is that, though? Is there no greater love than a man for his dog? Well, I don't mention that to my wife and children. <laughs> um, no, but I, I did. I brought, uh, yeah, my, I couldn't uh, transport my dog, Ruby, uh, full name Ruby Slippers, from okay. Canada with us. Um, yeah. But uh, she's my writing assistant and she's my devoted companion. But also part of why I thought it was interesting to kind of talk about hers because I came up with the idea for the book while walking her. And I was I had had the idea and I was a screenwriter, uh, you know, so I thought about it. Is it a movie? And I just, I couldn't kind of figure it out as a movie or I couldn't figure out a way to tell the story the way I wanted to tell it as a movie. And I was walking the dog one day and as I do, you know, every day. And as I was walking her, it suddenly occurred to me, it could be a novel. If I tell it as a novel, I could tell it in the first person. That would solve all the tonal questions that I've been grappling with. I'd have the space, the room, and and suddenly, not just the whole structure of the novel, but the voice of the novel all kind of like came to me at once. And I sat down on a bench and I took out my phone and I just started typing. In fact, if you open the book, the first chapter, which I narrated, mm. is almost word for word exactly what I wrote on my phone that day sitting on the park bench. And I had my dog, Ruby, you know... I was had the leash and she was just pulling and whining because she was like, we're on the walk. She was yeah. like, you know, that kind of like high pitched, like, mm, mm. <laughs> like, why are you sitting here <laughs> typing frantically on your phone? Why do I bring it up? Because it's interesting to me to think that like, because I, I thought about this idea for a long time. I couldn't figure it out. And then just one day while walking my dog, it came to me. Now, what had that, where, where does an idea come from? But on a, you know, uh, you know there's, it's a cliche, isn't it? Life happening to you while you're doing other things. But yeah. I think ideas happen to you while you're doing other things. That's right. Uh, in fact, it's quite annoying because a lot of time that's when you don't have a bit of paper or your phone or that's whatever right. next to you. And I always get a terrible sense of terror that I'm going to forget and, this brilliant idea that I've apparently had. That's exactly right. And and even in that moment, I was like, oh, I'll remember this when I get home. But mm-hmm. I was like, no, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to do this. And actually, I started doing that. I would walk the dog every day. But I started narrating the book to myself as um, on my phone as I would walk her. And so she became my little, like, even that 
block of like, okay, this is the hour where I'm going to walk the dog and I'm going to narrate the book to myself, mm. um, became sort of part of my ritual of actually writing it. And so I thought it was nice to bring uh, at least a memento of her, if not the real one. But there's um, no dog in the book, is there? No, so there isn't. Right? Yeah. No. Yeah. She's been alighted from the, That's from that amazing. narrative. She yeah. obsessed about that? Uh, you know, there's been lawyers involved <laughs> and, uh, you know. Yeah. Let's have another yeah. audio clip. This is not about dogs because sadly Ruby isn't in the book, but it is our final clip from the audio book of All I'm Wrong Today's. It's not like everything in my world was perfect. People still got screwed up by anxiety and stress and off-kilter neurochemistry. Pharmaceutical use was rampant. So was status panic. Power still corrupted. Infidelity still hurt. Marriages still collapsed. Love went unrequited. Childhood could be a playground or a dungeon. Some people are just constitutionally bad in bed and no amount of interactive pornography can fix that. But in the world built on the limitless energy of the Gatrider engine, oil was irrelevant, basic resources were plentiful, and everyone had access to all manner of technological enhancements, major and minor. Not everyone chose to live in our global techno-utopia. And it wasn't like countries never had tense disagreements and diplomatic posturing, but weaponry was so sophisticated and life so comfortable, there hadn't been a real geopolitical conflict in three decades. What was there to fight about? I'm sorry if that sounds wide-eyed or heavy-handed, but it is what it is. Scientific discovery was the dominant social motivator, since even the most arcane theories could be enacted by vast resources. Religion had little place in the public sphere. Hundreds of millions of people were still religious, but it's more of a cultural affectation, like folk dancing and pierogies. Morality did not collapse into nihilism. People were kind, people were rude, people were generous, people were greedy, people were courageous and cowardly, insightful and dull-witted, self-sacrificing and self-destructive, willful and easygoing, happy and sad. You could still get into a fistfight if you said the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong bar. Damaged people sometimes made bad decisions, smart people sometimes did stupid things, but everyone who wanted it had a place in the world. What is religion? What is philosophy? What is art? It's a question. Why? When you live in a miserable world of systemic inequity and toxic want, the answer is elusive and dissatisfying. And there's always a blameworthy because. Because of human nature, because of money, because of the government, because of magical puppet masters manipulating us from their celestial lair. The because can never really answer the why. The existential difference between my world and this world is that where I come from, the because is self-evident. Just look around. No one needed to ask why. The answer was obvious. We were happy. Our purpose was to keep it going, and if we had some way to contribute, make it incrementally better for those who would follow us, just as those who preceded us had. Yes, I understand that's a pretty good working definition of ideology, a belief system so immersive that it renders questions unquestionable. It wasn't perfect. Mistakes got made. Accidents happened. Ambitions were thwarted. People got hurt. Mothers died. Sons couldn't figure out why their fathers didn't love them. Women got pregnant and didn't want the babies. Suicides were committed. But it was a good world. A sane world. Billions of people with worthwhile lives. Some selfish, some selfless, most a bit of both. None of them deserved what I did to them.
Did you think about having an actor for the audiobook? Because uh, you're not a performer. Well, are you a performer, actually? <laughs> I mean, I have a bit of a background doing doing a little bit of acting and, right. and uh, radio and that kind of stuff. No, they just asked me to do it. You've got a completely correct voice for it. That might be, of course, because there is some crossover between you and yeah, Tom. But I think ob- their feeling was that, that the tone of my voice and sort of my delivery was appropriate for the book. And, and so, yeah, they just asked me. I, I didn't. I certainly didn't ask to do it. Right. Did, it you, was... did you enjoy doing it? Because it's quite a long slog, isn't it, reading, <laughs> reading your own book? <laughs> You know, I did enjoy it because I realized, you know, through the process, like, when am I ever going to read my entire book out loud from start to finish? Mm. Um, And the sort of fatalistic part of me felt like even if I walked out of the studio on the last day and got hit by a bus, if my children, who I have two, I have two young daughters, ever wanted to hear me tell the story, that it would now exist. Uh, That was a little dark. But um, but but the funny thing, actually, one of the funny experience, well, funny, slightly funny, disconcerting experiences was. The week that we scheduled the recording was actually the week of the American election. Okay. And so we started recording it, and then, you know, Tuesday evening happened. Okay, and, and then is there a clear downswing in your vocal tone after Tuesday evening? <laughs> well, it's funny because, I mean, without giving, you know, there's chapter. There's a certain chapter which has a lot of cursing in it. But this okay. book does not have a lot of cursing in it, but right. there is one chapter, right. which, as you know, has a lot of cursing in yeah. it. Uh, and that was the chapter I got to read when I came to the studio oh, right. uh, Wednesday morning after, uh, after Mr. Trump was elected president right. of the United States. States. Okay. And it was very cathartic for everybody yeah. in the room to kind of yeah. get. So um, it's funny because people have reviewed the audiobook and people have cited that chapter, which when I did it, I was like, oh, I can't like, it, it was just sort of like, re- I, I erupted out of me in one take. And for Canadians, can I, I mean, this is nothing but to do with the book, but I must just ask, I mean, what what is that like for Canadians? Because obviously everyone's appalled, yeah. <laughs> apart from the people who aren't, but lots of people are appalled, but Canadians more appalled because of their proximity? Well, I mean, it's that sense of, like, what is happening now. There was a sense of a – I mean, it's certainly not like humanity's problems were solved. They certainly weren't. But there was a sense of, like, there's a general stability to the mm. political order. But we were seeing, like, these huge things like Brexit, mm. like Trump. Mm. And that was what was strange about narrating the book because, you know, it is a book about waking up in a very different version of the world and being disoriented and not understanding the rules. Mm. What is this world? Where mm. are we going? How did we get here? Uh, and so reading that stuff – you know, which I had written before, all you know, before it all happened. So it was suddenly um, finding sentences in the book that I had written that I was reading out loud, which suddenly took on different resonance. It was very good because when you write a novel, it's a very intimate, personal thing, and then you publish it. You're, you're handing it over to the reader, and so in some ways, rediscovering my own work through this new political lens. I think it was good for me to kind of let go and be like, I'm now almost interpreting my own book differently, and yet I couldn't change anything that I've written because it's unabridged. But that's interesting that, I mean, in all the subconscious work that is, might be going on when you come up with a story to do with your own life, do you feel there is something else going on uh, which is to do with the fact that you probably grew up uh, at a time when, as, as I did as well, you felt like, okay, there's lots of things wrong, but there's a general progression towards mm-hmm. the light. Yeah. We're moving out of the darkness and towards the light in a very general way historically. And then that seems to have gone awry and gone awry partly because of technology, yeah. partly to, because of the internet. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, seeing the, the sort of the unintended consequences, the impact of technology on the electorate, on politics, you know, I mean, this is a book which is fundamentally about embracing the complexity of things, the mess, that mm. until you do that, you you don't ever solve problems by reducing them to simplistic kind of um, catchphrases to yes or no, black mm. and white, um, you know. The one and loss. Yes. Only by embracing the gray zones, the messiness, can you actually begin to really solve mm. bigger social problems and also your own personal problems 
baggage, you know, the obstacles that we, you set in front of yourself. Whatever certain politicians might say, these are complex issues and they need to be, you know, only by embracing their complexity are we ever going to come anywhere near solving them. You uh, have one more uh, sure. item, which is a slightly frightening looking thing. <laughs> is it a snake? Uh, this is a sandworm. This is a model from a movie I did. Okay. Uh, it's made of like rubber and sort of it's a bit like kind of gelatinous feeling and it has these little um, spindly legs sticking out of it. And in the actual movie, it was coated in goop and uh, sort of burrow. It was animated as it burrowed through the sand and attempted to devour people. And the reason I chose it, because I, uh, I wanted to talk about the value of failure mm. in process as well, because, you know, we're here, we're sitting here, my book has been published. But I also have gone through failures, like everybody in my career. I wrote this what turned out to be a not good movie uh, called Alone in the Dark, uh, which was like this sort of supernatural thriller that involved all kinds of these different creatures and, and starred uh, the actor Christian Slater. And when I wrote it, it was an attempt earlier on in my career to kind of marry my sort of pulp sci-fi fantasy interest with a more complex story. At the time, I was interested in, you know, the, the Iraq war was going on, and I was interested in writing a story about this sort of like looming supernatural threat and how different characters reacted both either with fear or understanding, and how the characters who reacted with fear to the things they didn't understand made it worse, and the ones who tried to understand what was really going on, although it was more dangerous and risky, were able to kind of solve the problem. So that was what was in my head. Now, if you were to watch the movie, that would seem an mm -hmm. absurdly grandiose okay. interpretation. Right. because it was terrible. Right. Um, and that was the first experience I had with being like, oh, like the director has a completely different vision of the movie. This didn't turn out, I wrote the script and then I got, it got taken away. I got rewritten. It got completely changed. There's moments and I can watch moments in the movie and be like, no, that actually is more or less the way I imagine it, but mm. they're so fleeting. Right. It's like um, whether or not the people who made the movie are happy with it is irrelevant. Like it's irrelevant to me in terms of like, I, I'm not, I'm not saying like, oh, they should be embarrassed or anything like that. Although in some cases they should. Okay. But, um, but I just mean like for me, it was like the watching, like it was like a nightmare version of your, of your, of your thing where everything was interpreted completely wrong. That's not how I meant it to be. That's not what I imagined. And it, it did feel like a failure because I had this opportunity and it just didn't work out at all. Mm. But I learned so a lot. So what did you from, learn? Yeah. Well, I learned a lot from it. Number one, I learned to trust my own creative instincts because there's a lot of parts in that process where there were disagreements happening and I was just like, well, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. At that time, I was young. I was quite young when I wrote it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're right. Maybe they, I don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, when I finally saw the movie, it actually, weirdly, it, even though the movie was a failure, it actually inspired confidence because I was like, oh, like I was right. Mm. When I thought that was a bad idea, I was correct. Mm. Everybody agrees with me, including the audience and the critics. Mm. Um, and even though my name is on the movie, in its failure, it actually really, it actually helped me find my voice. And also just the value of failure, you know, it's something I talk about in the book, is the importance of failure in success and that the sort of mythologizing of the Gatrider engine in this mm. moment in time. And Tom, who has this very difficult relationship with his father, who's this incredibly successful, brilliant scientist who's created this he's the one who invents the time machine mm. and Tom just feels like it's not just that he's not as smart as his father is capable as father even if he was he's never going to achieve anything as great as his father has so he's going to always live in his shadow and so for Tom at least in the beginning of the book it's why even try mm. now of mm. course he changes that perspective as it goes along but that idea of success is the end result of years of failing mm. you know and an appreciating the value of failure in the creative process in the process of discovery and that if you only see the success at the end you're going to be discouraged you're going to feel like there's no point in even trying because how am I ever going to get there mm. when in fact whatever your endeavor is it's a long period of failure and by the time you get to success success is just the relief that you're stopped failing mm. you know and that was important to me when I started writing this book like 
I didn't have a book deal. I didn't have a book agent. No one was asking me to write a book, frankly. But I had a story that was important to me to tell. Now, I've come to the other side, which is that I sold the movie rights. Yeah. Uh, and so now I am actually working on the screenplay <laughs> right, okay. version of it, which is its own kind of challenge. Yeah. But no, when I wrote the book, I, I wrote it as a book because I felt like that was the best way to tell the story, even if I wasn't sure I could do it. A novel is inevitably as much about the reader as it is about the author. I mean, the author tells the story in the way that their particularly skewed mind, you know, uh, that frames it. But then you hand it over and then it's for the reader. And I've had responses from readers who have already read the book who uh, are so different. And that's actually when I feel like I've succeeded because if I only ever get one consistent response, I feel like it's too limited. You know, Mm -hmm. I I want to write a book that tells us hopefully, you know, page turning, expansive, interesting story, but that it's not actually done until each reader has their own experience of it. I mean, the tragedy for me as a novelist is like, I don't get to sit there and like watch over your shoulder or Mm. look inside your mind as you're reading. You've got to let that go. You do, right? (laughs) But as a, you know, as a screenwriter, you can sit in the movie theater and have the people having the experience around you. And so it's something that I'm adjusting to. But that idea, when I, when I hear from people, all these wildly different interpretations, that's actually, to me, that's the best. That means that the work is alive. Yeah. Thank you very much. We've been talking about All Our Wrong Today is a book with, which if any book should have many different responses from many different readers because it involves the many different possibilities that exist in our own universe. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you for having me, David. Ready Player One. It's the year 2044, and the real world has become an ugly place. We're out of oil. We've wrecked the climate. Famine, poverty and disease are widespread. Everyone my age remembers where they were and what they were doing when they first heard about the contest. I was sitting in my hideout watching cartoons when the news bulletin broke in on my video feed, announcing that James Halliday had died during the night. I'd heard of Halliday, of course. Everyone had. He was the video game designer responsible for creating the Oasis, a massively multiplayer online game that had gradually evolved into the globally networked virtual reality most of humanity now used on a daily basis. The unprecedented success of the Oasis had made Halliday one of the wealthiest people in the world. At first, I couldn't understand why the media was making such a big deal of the billionaire's death. After all, the people of planet Earth had other concerns. The ongoing energy crisis, catastrophic climate change, widespread famine, poverty and disease, half a dozen wars. You know, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Normally, the news feeds didn't interrupt everyone's interactive sitcoms and soap operas, unless something really major had happened, like the outbreak of some new killer virus or another major city vanishing in a mushroom cloud. Big stuff like that. As famous as he was, Halliday's death should have warranted only a brief segment on the evening news so the unwashed masses could shake their heads in envy when the newscasters announced the obscenely large amount of money that would be doled out to the rich man's heirs. But that was the rub. James Halliday had no heirs. He had died a 67-year-old bachelor with no living relatives and, by most accounts, without a single friend. He'd spent the last 15 years of his life in self-imposed isolation, during which time, if the rumors were to be believed, he'd gone completely insane. So the real jaw-dropping news that January morning The news that had everyone from Toronto to Tokyo crapping in their cornflakes, 
concerned the contents of Halliday's last will and testament and the fate of his vast fortune. Written by Ernest Klein and read by Will Wheaton, Ready Player One is available now to download and own on Audible and iTunes.